Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. Last week's midterm elections produced an outcome that was surprising on countless levels, the stunning historical underperformance of the Republican Party, the striking resilience of the Democratic Party, and in particular, its strength with independent voters, the repudiation of all, and I do mean maybe not all, but a lot of the pre-election forecasting and punditry predicting a red wave, scolding Democrats for placing too much emphasis on abortion, which turned out to be a pretty big deal, and so on and so forth. But the biggest stunner was also at once the most overarching and most fundamental aspect of the midterm elections. That would be the emphatic, decisive drubbing dealt to the election deniers and outright insurrectionists across the board and around the country as independent and other swing voters delivered a firm rebuke to extremism and radical right-wing overreach in pretty much all its guises as Trump-backed candidates and Trump himself election deniers and outright stormers of the Capitol, all, all, really almost to a person, got their asses kicked from here to Sunday. All of it leading to a conclusion that as recently as the closing hours before the final votes were cast on election day seemed utterly and depressingly unlikely that November 8th, 2022 would be, as Joe Biden put it on November 9th, a good day for democracy. To help us put what just happened in the proper historical perspective, we turn this week to a man for whom that phrase might well have been invented, a guy who is relentlessly proper, rigorously historical, and reliably perspective-laden, a former editor-in-chief of Newsweek, a former executive editor of Random House, author of more than a dozen books, including American Lion, Andrew Jackson in the White House, for which he won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for Biography, and most recently, his latest New York Times bestseller, And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. He's also the occupant of the Carolyn T. and Robert M. Rogers Endowed Chairmanship of the American Presidency at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he lives perilously close to Al Gore. And uh, since right around this time last year, he's also the possessor of one of the great honorifics, and I'm sure sinecures in the professional looking backwards racket, canon historian of the Washington National Cathedral, a building in which he has no doubt spent more time than I have spent in all the churches in all the world in all of my 56 years here on planet Earth. Now, given all that, it is slightly shocking that John Meacham, that's who we're talking about, would deign even to piss on me if someone lit me on fire and poured a gallon of gasoline over my head. And yet, in what is surely only one, but a pretty important sign of the deep Christian virtues of charity, beneficence, tolerance for profanity, forgiveness of countless more grievous sins, all those qualities, charity, beneficence, tolerance, forgiveness, those are the qualities that have not only guaranteed John Meacham a room, but an executive suite in the five-star hotel that awaits him in heaven. Given all of that, the dude is amazingly a dear old pal of mine and an official friend of this podcast, and therefore willing to make himself available, to disgorge pearls of wisdom, such as this, this pearl of wisdom, about why the results of last week's electoral shockeroo were so heartening for those of us not on Team Republican or even on Team Democrat, but instead charter members, or at least members in good standing, 
of team democracy. In American politics, in any kind of politics, really, there's no such thing as permanent victory, which is why autocracy is so tricky and why people need to be careful, because the whole history of the world is the strong can subjugate the weak, but the weak have a tendency to become strong someday, and the strong have a tendency to become weak. Sure. You know, the, the very flawed, very fallible American both founders and then ultimately the guardians of, of the constitutional system, what we have managed to do is minimize that tumult. And that tumult was given fresh and damn near unprecedented, a word I don't like to use. But Herbert Hoover in 1932 didn't put election deniers on the ballot and it's come back in 36. Hubert Humphrey didn't do it in 1968. Al Gore didn't do it in 2000. Donald Trump did. And I find it heartening and mark this, you know, when, when things turn south again, you know, we, we can talk about it. But I find it heartening that just enough of us said, ah, you know what, let's dance with the one that brung us. And the one that's brung us this far is I want the votes to be counted. My interview with John, it should be noted, took place last Friday before the Arizona and Nevada Senate races have been called, striking down two more of the GOP election deniers who lost last week and guaranteeing that the upper chamber would remain in Democratic hands no matter what occurs in the December runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker down in Georgia. And of course, long before we knew, because as of now, we still don't know, the result of the Arizona governor's race, i.e. the fate of Kerry Lake, election denier in chief kind of the rising star of the crazy conspiracy mob. You'll hear me refer to that worriedly on the pod. But even so, it was not too soon for us to talk through Joe Biden's sense of vindication and the ways that he might be thinking about 2024, Donald Trump's abject humiliation, and the ways in which he might be thinking, if you can call it that, about 2024. And Ron DeSantis's big election night, which will no doubt further the conviction that DeSantis seems to have and that was evinced in that crazy-ass Paul Harvey ripoff, God made a fighter ad that you've probably seen on Twitter, that he, Ron DeSantis, isn't just touched with greatness, but by the hand of the creator. A notion that John Meacham, not to mention the Almighty, has a few things to say about. As for me, all I'll say is that if there is any justice in this world, and after last week, you'd be forgiven for letting yourself believe for a moment that, hey, there might be, then Governor DeSantis, daring to don the mantle of the chosen one, will prove to be nothing more and nothing less for him than a one-way ticket to a world of hell and high water. Good afternoon. Well, we had an election yesterday. And uh, it was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was a good day for America. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. The states across the country uh, saw record voter turnout. And the heart and soul of our democracy, the voters, the poll workers, the election officials, uh, they uh, did their job uh, and they fulfilled their duty. And apparently without much uh, interference at all, without any interference, it looks like. And that's a testament, I think, to the American people. 
Joseph Robin F. Biden Jr. with, uh, you know, yesterday was a good day for democracy. Barack Obama's first midterm will be remembered. He said, you know, talked about the shellacking and, and it's a better place to be when you're a president when you can walk out and say a good day for democracy and a good day for America. And we're here with John Meacham who knows a lot about both democracy uh, and America and also a lot about Joe Biden. Uh, John's good to see you. Um, give me your sense of like what, you know, you saw him walk out there. That was a, I mean, not very many presidents in our lifetime, I would say, you know, other than George W. Bush, were able to walk out after a, 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 for their first midterm election and be happy. Um, and he was, and I think he's right. It was a good day for democracy. At least that's my view. I want to hear what you have to say. I think, and we should disclose, right? Uh, yeah, at the top. President Biden is a friend. I help him when I can. I spoke to him this week and he was happier than he was when he won in 2020. He said uh, that he was happier than he was or you felt no. like he was happier than he was? That's just my impression. There was a buoyancy and a, um, a confidence in the verdict that honestly, I didn't hear in the fall of 2020. So I think we can talk about why that might be. But, you know, it was every once in a while, politicians mean what they say. And I think he meant everything he said in this election season. I think he believed that democratic institutions, lowercase d, were on the ballot. I think with these election deniers on the ballot, he understood that the rule of law and the durability of a popular government was in fact in question. And while the war is not over, this looks to be a battle won. And I think that I think it was a good week for democracy. Let me just add one more thing, which my my college sophomore son who thinks he knows everything, which is redundant, college <laughs> sophomore. Yeah, I got it. I get the joke. He accuses me of being uh, too much of an institutionalist, that I'm more interested in the process and the guardrails that produce results than I am in the particular policy results. I'm not sure he's wrong about that. Guilty. Yeah. As, right. uh, as George H.W. Bush would say, guilty. And I think, therefore, that this was a good week. I think we, it will be a wonderful moment in American life when we go back to arguing about marginal tax rates and immigration policy, yeah. as opposed to who won elections that we all, you know, if we're being absolutely honest, we know who won. So there's a, there's a bunch of things in there, obviously, that we're going to spend the entire time together here unpacking. Starting with the last thing you said, you know, it, the, the things that Biden says, I, first of all, I think Biden almost always means what he says. I, the, you know, Bill Clinton, who, as you will well recall, Bob Kerry once said was an unusually good liar. You know, that's not a thing anybody would ever say about Joe Biden. You know, Biden has, Biden has various flaws, right? But prevarication isn't really his flaw, you know? And his flaws, he's, he's hard on the sleeve. And when he tries to run a mouse by you, he can barely keep a straight face most of the time. It's like, he just, he, he says what he means, he means what he says, sometimes articulately, sometimes not. But I think he meant yeah, everything he said at the press conference and all the arguments he's been making. And it's interesting to me that, you know, the thing that you said a second ago, which is, these things he said at the press conference about poll workers and all these things, they would have in any other time in our lifetime, they would have been banalities. We would have been like, what a cornball. Why is he talking about, you know, how great it was for America that the poll workers, and there weren't irregularities. And like, that's just all civics books bullshit. And, yep. and yet in this moment, you're sitting there going, yeah, like he's right. Yes, fuck yeah, he's right. It, it needs to be said. Yep, no, that's exactly right. And it, it is remarkable. What I say sometimes is, the fact that I just said we should obey the rule of law, the fact that that sounds partisan is a sign of where we are. And, you know, again, nope. In American politics, 
in any kind of politics, really, there's no such thing as permanent victory, which is why autocracy is so tricky and why people need to be careful because the whole history of the world is the strong can subjugate the weak, but the weak have a tendency to become strong someday and the strong have a tendency to become weak. Sure. You know, the, the very flawed, very fallible American both founders and then ultimately the guardians of, of the constitutional system, what we have managed to do is minimize that tumult. And that tumult was given fresh and damn near unprecedented, a word I don't like to use. But Herbert Hoover in 1932 didn't put election deniers on the ballot and it's come back in 36. Hubert Humphrey didn't do it in 1968. Al Gore didn't do it in 2000. Donald Trump did. And I find it heartening and mark this, you know, when when things turn south again, you know, we, we can talk about it. But I find it heartening that just enough of us said, ah, you know what, let's dance with the one that brung us. And the one that's brung us this far is I want the votes to be counted. So I want to come back and talk about Biden in a little more depth a little later, but but I want to stick just because this podcast is, you know, we're still kind of reacting to what happened on Tuesday, last Tuesday, by the time this people hear this, in the midterm elections. It's fair to say this was an unexpected outcome, unexpected in terms of historical precedent, not unprecedented, but not what history tells us to expect, and not what pundits and polling and conventional wisdom were all telling us to expect on Tuesday. And I'm curious about from your perspective, you're not, you know, there used to was time, people may be shocked to learn this, but before John Meacham became Pulitzer Prize winning historian and the high deacon of America's civic religion, uh, he used to be a working journalist, right? And used to be yeah, in a news magazine format that- High deacon, I like that, high deacon. Yeah, and people, like and people don't know there were these things called news magazines. They were actually once, not that long ago, within our lifetime, were actually estimable institutions. People cared about what they I said. Was a very big, I was a very, very big figure in the Pony Express. Correct, that's yeah. exactly right. But you used to be, you know, tethered to it. And I wonder if you could put yourself back in, in your, I was editor of Newsweek. And, and I, know you're, I know you are, even though you're not having to cover it on a daily or weekly basis, I know you're paying attention very carefully. So like, what were your expectations going into Tuesday? What did you think was going to happen? And, and what was your reaction as you saw the night play out? I thought it was going to be like 1946 or 66 or 94, maybe 82 where Reagan kept the Senate, but he lost a ton of House seats. I was a total prisoner of the, my expectation was totally in line with the conventional wisdom, chiefly because of inflation. It's not a hell of a lot more complicated than that. We ebb and we flow in, in American history. We almost, to me, one of the most fascinating things about American politics is the moment a president is elected, we tend to forget what the choice was. And we kind of expect the president, the the new president to be all powerful. And we don't remember that it was a choice. Like nobody came to the country in 2016 and said, do you want Donald Trump to be president? It was, do you want Donald Trump or do you want Secretary Clinton? Nobody in 2020 said, do you want Joe Biden? It was, do you want Joe Biden or do you want four more years of Trump? But there's something in our political brain that just moves on from that. And then we get grumpy because they're not all powerful. So we send them a message 24 months later. And then depending on, you know, 82, 94, 2010, we tend to then move back a little bit and reelect that president to whom we just sent that message. So 
long-winded way of saying, as a conventional observer of American politics, that's what I expect. And one grounded in, in history and, and, you know, what, what <laughs> a lot of people, you know, younger than us, have no memory of what inflation normally does to yeah. people sitting in office. Like there are people, you had this fight for the last two years where people were like, why don't you guys explain that inflation is in the media? Why don't you explain that it's a worldwide phenomenon? Why don't you explain that the president can't control it? You're like, I could do all that all day long, but I'm telling you, the guys I run into in Scottsdale, Arizona, who are pissed about $5 a gallon gasoline, don't give a flying fuck about whether it's international or whether Joe Biden can control it or not. They look at Democratic rule in Washington. They see their gas prices are high. It's hitting them right where it hurts, and they're going to be pissed. That's, you know, I, I could be on, I could sit on cable TV all day trying to explain all the exigencies and externalities, but it doesn't matter. So you expected that. And we've, saw, we've seen, you know, it's like Biden's approval rating and therefore the Democrats' approval ratings have been tied to nothing more clearly than gas prices. You know, it's this been, been like you watch the gas prices go up, their disapproval rating goes up, the gas prices go down, their disapproval goes down, their approval goes up. So what, when you saw the, the night unfold, given your expectations in line with conventional wisdom, I mean, now we're a little bit past it. You probably have uh, theories and analyses and you've been soaking and, 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 and marinating in, the, in all of the hot takes about what happened. But it, as you watched it unfold, what was your feeling in that, in that moment? Like you thought, what, okay, what's going on here? How are you processing that and kind of trying to explain it to yourself? People have been talking about the three Ds and I, having been a prisoner of conventional wisdom that was wrong, I'm now a prisoner of conventional wisdom that explains why we were wrong. Dobbs, democracy, and deniers. And remember, this was not a blowout, right? I mean, it's, it's almost certain, I guess, that the House flips. And so it's remarkable that the loss of a chamber is seen as a victory. But in a country that is this polarized, where you have vanishingly few people who are reachable, my reaction was that the folks who were reachable listened, I believe, and it may not have been dispositive, but at least it was in there. It was in the decision-making matrix that Trumpism led to a bunch of folks storming the United States Capitol. And that was about taking away a right. It was about taking away the right of the people to choose their leaders. And I think that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a removal of a right. I remember in the era that sort of formed us, God help us, people talking like Dave Kusnett and, you know, sort of those democratic voices in the 90s talking about it's really, really hard to take away a right or a program once it's there, right? It may be very hard to establish it, but once it's there, there's not a lot of examples in American history of rights being limited. In fact, the story of America is that rights are expanded. And I think that the reproductive question was hugely important. I think that the denial and the democracy part was seen as contiguous yeah. with that. And it was just enough of us, right? I mean, these were not huge margins in these house races. And one of my standard points that you've had to listen to for years is we are a 51-49 country, right? We've only had three presidential elections since World War II where 60% of the people agreed on who should be president. Only three times. So we're not even a 60-40 country. You know, if we're kind of more unified, we might be a 53-47. But right now we're 51-49. And it very easily, it seems to me, could have been 51-49 as a send them a message election to the incumbent party. But it wasn't. It was a 51-49 election that said, 
we may not love what the Democratic Party represents right now, but we are more fearful of what the Republican Party represents right now. I will read to you just briefly, you know, the, uh, because I know, like college sophomores who think they know everything, you can also, <laughs> also be set a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Sometimes they think they know everything. But this actually, right, I was reading this this morning. You know, David Shore, one of the, 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 the smartest young, youngish, you know, Democratic data guys who's been making, has been very influential, has made a lot of arguments about what Democrats need to do and what they don't need to do. He, at the end of every election cycle, he does an interview with a reporter at New York Magazine and lays out his kind of preliminary theories about what happened. And it's totally fascinating because he focuses on one of the, on one of the Ds. He focuses on Dobbs and says Dobbs is basically the whole story. Interestingly, the pundits, the punditocracy in the, in the closing weeks of the campaign kept telling Democrats, you know, you put too many eggs in the abortion basket. And, and Shore says, no, it turns out like that was the, that was the whole thing. And he goes through some data about uh, some stuff that you would find super interesting about the ways that what party ownership, a concept where parties are trusted for a lot, lots of historical reasons about on certain things. And one of those things Democrats are trusted on. Unlike Republicans who are trusted on things like crime and national security, Democrats are trusted on things like health care and the party ownership metric and the dominance of Democrats on abortion, which had previously been kind of neutral, abortion became amped way up in all the data they look at. And the thing that I thought you would find most interesting about this part, I was just going to read to you just because it's so Meacham-esque. He says, I think it's important to emphasize what happened with abortion is extremely rare. It's very rare for party ownership of an issue to shift this rapidly. And I think it really boils down to this concept of thermostatic public opinion. He said, the president's party almost always does poorly in the midterm elections. That's a consistent pattern going back to the 30s, similar overseas. And then he cites a paper by an academic named Joseph Bafumi, which basically finds that voters like to balance out policy change. They have a very strong sense of status quo bias and loss aversion. As a result, they react negatively to dramatic changes in policy. So when policy moves left, they move right. When it moves right, they move left. Just as the temperature goes up outside, you move the thermostat up and down. He talks about how the support for universal health care was high under Bush. When Obama enacted it, it went down. When Trump thought, thought to repeal it, it went back up again. And he says the thing that's so interesting about this is he says, voters are trying to balance out policy change by creating divided government. And I think what's really unique about this midterm cycle is that Republicans created a radical policy change and one that was quite unpopular without controlling the presidency or the legislature, which allowed Democrats to plausibly run as the party that was going to make less change than the opposition, which is a super unusual situation. And I, I read that this morning on the, on the plane. I thought, yeah, that's, there's something in that. And you know, to be able to run, do, you're dominating both branches of government and to be able to run, though, as the party that's trying to moderate radical change from this being imposed by the minority party. That's just a, a very unusual circumstance. And I think to the extent that abortion turns out to have been pivotal in this election, that's a big explanation for how it all worked. I don't think there's any doubt about it. There's a political scientist in North Carolina named uh, Jim Stimson who has a, a similar kind of thermometer that's about role of government. And it absolutely tracks with what you're quoting. When we elect a Republican, public opinion for government goes up. When we elect a Democrat, public opinion for government goes down. This is true from Eisenhower forward. It's a, it's, it's a fascinating We're a cantankerous, contrarian bunch of jerks in this country, you know? Well, we are. We are. And, and that's okay, right? It's a big, complicated, disputatious country. And, you know, and my God, there are 330 million of us, you know, what, 100 million people voted. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of different views, which is the way it's supposed to work. Here's my 
unasked for dork theory, partly of the moment that I, I think has some merit to it. I, I have an emergent theory in my head that Richard Nixon is far more important than we think for two reasons. One is coming out of the political violence of 1968, two incredibly tragic assassinations, 46, I think, Americans died every day in Vietnam, Chicago, George Wallace gets 13.5% of the vote. You know, just 68 was a period where people thought we might not make it. But we did. If you're me, you're sitting around, you think, well, why? Well, you know, Nixon actually governed in a more centrist way creates the EPA, proposes something that Andrew Yang, you know, is picking up, the guaranteed income, proposed a health care system that was far to the left of Obama, and then wins, he's one of those guys, right, wins 60% of the vote in 1972. And when he broke the law, then he ended up following the law. So I'm not praising him, right? We don't, I'm not saying, you know, put him on Rushmore, but Richard Nixon had a sense of shame. And when those senators came to him in August and said, you, you can't make it, he followed the Constitution. And if you dig a little bit deeper on that, who wrote Roe v. Wade? Harry Blackman, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon, who had been vice president for the man who appointed Earl Warren. And so I have this theory. I've bored you with it before, but you called, so you have to listen to it again, that 1933 to 2017 was a period where our politics broadly was defined by a kind of figurative debate between FDR and Reagan. And that conversation was distorted almost beyond recognition from 2017 to 2021. There has been a kind of renewal of that consensus, which is not a policy consensus. It's a process consensus. And there are lots of folks younger than us who think that's a bad thing, that that consensus does not produce the results we want. Doubtless, the rise of Trump is because a lot of folks think that that consensus did not produce the results they wanted. But democracies aren't about the perfect. They're about the better. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on Hell and High Water, and then we'll return with more of my friend John Meacham, Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer and the author, most recently, of And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. You made the point, the democracy is on the ballot point, you know, and clearly in the last the closing days, Joe Biden definitely, you know, closed on, on democracy, did a whole speech on it. Barack Obama, uh, as he was out there doing his, his work in, the, in these places where hotly contested Senate and gubernatorial races were happening, he leaned into that issue, although he leaned into some others, which I'll get to a little later, but he, he put it front and center. And then you had guys like this, Josh Shapiro, who wins, you know, an overwhelming victory to become the governor-elect of Pennsylvania. I want to just listen to, here's Josh Shapiro giving his victory speech uh, on the night of November 8th. He beats Doug Mastriano, one of the most out front election deniers, uh, a guy who was on actually on Capitol Hill on, on January 6th on the day of the insurrection. Josh Shapiro wins a, wins a wide, easy, whomping victory and then gives this speech here. Tonight, you, the good people of Pennsylvania, you won, opportunity won. A woman's right to choose one. The right to organize here in Pennsylvania. That one. 
your right to vote won. And in the face of all the lies and the conspiracies and baseless claims, you also ensured tonight that truth won right here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He campaigned in a very high-minded way um, and was rewarded for it. And that guy, you know, I, I, I will, we'll, we'll have a whole other podcast somewhere down the line about how hard it's going to be eventually to elect a Jewish president. But that guy is... Uh, that guy has got his eyes on the prize, and, and, and he's proven himself in this campaign to be a, an all-star at level, level, if not yet Hall of Fame political athlete. He's, a, he's the real deal. You look around and you saw, in these, especially in these Biden states, um, the, the, the battleground states where there was contested questions around the, the, the legitimacy of the 2020 election, the election deniers got their asses handed to them, with a couple of notable exceptions. Again, we'll come to that in a minute, but... I guess I wonder, do you sense that there was salience to this argument in the way, abortion, it's a very salient argument. I mean, there's a lot of people whose lives are affected in a very direct way by the loss of abortion rights. This democracy argument, the question for me was always, yes, people say it's important to them, but is it really something they vote on? Is it really salient? Do people really feel that their democracy is in jeopardy? Or was it just packaged well with all of the MAGA Republican extremism as one element of various things that goes to this point we were talking about before, which was, Democrats successfully made the out-of-power party seem more threatening than the in-power party because there were an array of issues. They seem to just be way too radical and way too crazy for America. I think that's right. I think what you just said is, is exactly right. I think that if you take the democracy argument out, you have a better Republican night. If it were just democracy, you probably would have had a better Republican night. So I think that it was a manifestation yet another manifestation of a prevailing anxiety, which is that an extreme element was trying to take stuff away, whether it's a right to choose, the right to vote, as the governor-elect just said, the right to have a rational debate about what's, what's unfolding. So is it, let me put it this way, is it causative alone? Probably not. But it's a it's a correlated factor that I think made a difference. In a way, it kind of doesn't matter because we got the result we need. He played his total self-parody, as the Bible says, by their fruits, ye shall know them. So I don't care why people did it. I'm just glad they did it. And it has the effect of, I think, bringing the temperature down on this, and I use this word advisedly, an existential question about keeping a democratic lowercase d project going. And the fact that we're having to have the conversation tells us a lot about, you know, a, a deep lack of trust in a huge part of the country. I have always thought that basically 35% of the country is ripe for the kind of extremist appeal that Trump made. I base that number. That's roughly the number of folks who still approved of Joe McCarthy after yeah. he was censured. Right. So that's an interesting number. And what's been so interesting about the last six years has been that that 35 yeah. has been 48. And I, my argument privately has been you don't have to get 100 percent of the people to agree with you. You have to get that 12 percent roughly to say, nah, we're, we're not going to burn this house down. And I think that that's appears to be what what happened. 
So that leads us back to the thing you started with when you said that um, you talked to Biden this week. I said I'd loop back to this. You said you talked to him and yeah. he seemed happier uh, with this result than he did back in the similar time frame back in 2020. And you said, you know, we can talk about why uh, if you want to. And now I want to. So like, I'm curious about what you think is, uh, whether it's, I feel like some of the things you were saying a second ago are part of what is part of the reason, part of the explanation. Because of course, we all remember even after Joe Biden was duly and legitimately elected president of the United States, there were two months in which the other side continued to challenge that election on a variety of bogus bullshit made up reasons and that got beaten down in the courts and uh, as, uh, time and time again. We saw all kinds of craziness over the course of the rest of November and December of 2020 leading up to then the ultimate act of not just craziness but insidiousness when we saw the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. You know, that I can imagine that's part of the reason why Biden feels happier now. His name wasn't on the ballot. People worried these election denialists were going to deny the elections if they lost. They didn't. You know, Tudor Dixon stood up and said, I concede. Dr. Oz stood up and said, I concede. There are still a couple of uncalled races. We'll see what happens in Arizona and Nevada. But by and large, even the election denialists, Doug Mastriano isn't out there saying there was massive fraud and that Josh Shapiro's victory is illegitimate. That didn't happen. It feels like part of what's going on with Biden is to see some of those things. But, I'm, but you have a lot more insight into him because you talked to him more recently than I did. And you talked to him back in that time frame too and you were working on speeches for him. So tell me about what you think, what, the, what, what do you think is behind the difference and why he's lighter in his step today than when he got elected president. So this will sound boosterish, but I don't care because I think it's true. Put yourself back in the winter, that terrible winter of 2021. Pre-vaccine, we're on our way to 1.1 million COVID deaths. I think unemployment was 20%, close to it, right? And you had, as you were just describing, a building insurrection, both literal and figurative, being led by a president of the United States. Joe Biden went, was first elected to federal office 51 years ago. 50 years ago, exactly. Yep. 50 years ago, exactly. Yeah. So half a century. So what's that? That's uh, a huge chunk of yeah. the life of the yeah. republic, right? So Biden is a part of the American experiment. His life has been given to institutional checks and balances. He's been a senator or a vice president and now president longer than Theodore Roosevelt, John Kennedy, Bill Clinton, or Barack Obama had been alive before they Okay? So his ambient reality is about the durability and legitimacy of these institutions. Plus, you know, Joe Biden's whole worldview is a personal experience plus an understanding of what America can do at its best. And so he was in that moment where People were suffering, people were sick, people were dying, people were out of work, and people weren't sure that democracy was going to survive January 2021. And so the immensity of that crisis, I think, took him, unlike almost anybody else, except for presidents who became president because of assassination or a tragic moment, took the moment of, wow, I've won the great prize. Right. It took that away, right? You worked for him the first time, right? No, Wait but I, yeah, I almost did. If you hadn't dropped out, I was, was going to be my first job out of college. And then he okay. quit the race before I had a chance to, get, to start right. working for him at 86, okay. 87. Right. So 
so he'd been he'd been thinking about this off and on for that period of time and you get it and you kind of hope you get five or ten minutes where you get to celebrate he never had that so and this is all me by the way i haven't had this level of conversation with him about it but this is my my opinion my opinion is that his satisfaction with the way the country voted this week was that it was a vote not simply on prospectively what he might do but on what he has been doing well and that's sweet and that's right that's more in a way that's almost more satisfying and so that's my that's my view and as you said before look biden is an upside down iceberg people ask me all the time you know what does he really say in private well 95 percent of what he said in public and I couldn't really find you the 5%. And maybe he has a dark side. Maybe there's some streak that he would never want to show the world. But if so, I've never seen it. Well, he has, look, he, the, the, his dark streaks are, the things that people could criticize are, are all out there in front. He's, he has a vanity to him and he has his pride. He easily he can be prickly. He, he can, he's, he's often thin-skinned. He kind of compares himself to other politicians, sometimes from a position of the inferiority complex, even as president. These are all human frailties. These are not massive, like, dark side. They're not like Donald Trump-level things. There's human flaws, right? But I think it's the wars want a different way to put it. Right there's, there's kind of the thing you just said was I don't think didn't think it sounded boosterish, but it's high minded. I don't think it's wrong. But there's another way to look at it, just in the in the most quotidian sense. You know, we've just talked about how unusual it is for a sitting president first midterm to to fare as well as he did. Um, very limited losses in the House. Still, as we sit here today, there's still some small chance Democrats will hold the House. And, you know, the, the Senate's not yet resolved, but this was not a shellacking. This was not a red wave. This was not a repudiation. All of that. Joe Biden has been listening to people tell him that he's wrong in this era. This, not the 50 years back, but it was like, you can never get the Democratic nomination, the nomination. That party is way too left. It's way too progressive. It's way too woke. You are an old man and you are a centrist. You will not get that nomination. And he got the nomination. And then it was, you can never beat that Donald Trump. Donald Trump has a movement. You don't have a movement. You can never beat Donald Trump. And he beat Donald Trump. And for the last two years, he's been listening to smart asses, some of them like me, who've been like, you shouldn't talk about how you have an FDR-sized agenda. You, you, you had two narrow margins in the House and Senate. You won't get this stuff done. You fucked it all up. You know, you're now going to get a shellacking. And, and he kept, throughout, he kept this weird, almost kind of, for a lot of people, lunatic optimism up. Up until the last day, he was like, I think we're going to be fine on the midterms. And people looked at him like, okay, Uncle Joe has finally lost his fucking mind. But they've been saying that really for the last three or four years. For him, it's got to be like a little bit, you know, whether you consider this a bad quality or not, there's got to be a little bit of like, hey, you know what? Not for the first time. Fuck you. You were wrong. I was right. And I can stand up here. The, the results speak for themselves. I mean, when I hear him say that thing in the press briefing the other day, which was, you know, he has this like kind of little snigger about how uh, people mock his optimism about what was going to happen. Yeah, you all made fun of me, gave me a hard time for this. But, you know, it turns out <laughs> I was right. There's some part of it's got to feel good, right? To, to, to have, to constantly be beating back the cynical conventional wisdom that he's too old, too lame, you know, lost it, doesn't have it, never had it, whatever. I just got to feel good about that. I think there's, there's no question. He has to. And, you know, he's a practitioner of politics. He's president of the United States. As you say, smart alecks are always telling him that he's wrong. And now this is a perennial thing, right? I mean, all presidents go through it. He is particularly susceptible to it because... It did take him until he was 79 years old to do it. 
it was an unusual path. Interestingly, it looks at on, on one level is like the most traditional path to becoming president, but yeah. <laughs> on another, it's not. And so at a certain point, it may just be that doing the right thing as you define it, sticking to it pays off. And now we're going to have a big test of this, right? We're going to have a huge test of whether a version of what I said and what you just said uh, is in fact true, because now we have to see whether he's going to run for a second term. Well, yes. And let, let, me, let me get to that in one second, but let me ask you, let me ask you one more question that, you know, you will recall, I remember talking to you in the early, late winter, early spring back in 2021, Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a theory going around then. I, Maureen Dowd wrote it, and a lot of people we know subscribe to it, which was part of the reason Biden has this big ambition to be a new FDR, to pass, to have these big domestic achievements, is that some part of him wants to show the world that he's better than Barack Obama, like that he's going to be a more consequential president, that he has respect for Obama, but that there's there's some competition there. Now, again, I think Maureen wrote that in a column and, and many people in the Beltway world kind of nodded their heads and said, yep, that's Joe Biden. There's some part of him that wants to basically say, Barack Obama's a historic president, but I'm a better president because I know how to work the legislative system better and et cetera, et cetera. And I, again, I mentioned it earlier. If you look, think back about Barack Obama's 2010 midterm Post midterm press conference, standing up there, chastened, lost, yeah. having lost sixty three seats in the House, sixty three seats, and having to stand there with all that pride that he had in himself, and, and most of it just well justified, and having to say to everybody, "Yeah, man, we really fucking screwed the poodle here." It was a, a moment of great humbling for Obama. There's got to be some part of Biden that thinks, "Yeah, look, I just defied history and." Compare my midterm, my first midterm to my friend Barack Obama's first midterm. I look pretty good by comparison, don't I? Do you think there's some, some of that there? Two things on that. I have never heard the president talk about President Obama in anything remotely like that since. So that's one thing. The second thing, however, <laughs> is that like you, I've been very lucky in my life. I've known a lot of these men at this point, all men who have become president And not a single one of them is not at some level competitive with their predecessors and their successors. Right. Right. It's just it's just the case. Uh, Our friends Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy wrote a wonderful book about the President's Club. And that's exactly right. But it is a club with the most competitive (laughs) people people on on Earth. Yeah. I mean, imagine what it takes to stand up in a country of 330 million people and say, yeah, I should have the nuclear codes. And I think the remarkable thing, actually, about presidents is that they manage to submerge it as well as they do. Because they're walking around these museums. You know, they live in a museum. They walk past pictures of the people who have been there. And then in their workspace, I've always, this is one of the many essays I will never write, I think it's really, really (laughs) psychologically important that the formal rooms of the White House are about the past. But the workspace in the White House, the West Wing, you walk past pictures of yourself. Right. (laughs) Right. The Signal Corps puts out these. Your listeners probably know this, but others may not. The walls, including on Marine One and Air Force One and the White House are pictures of the incumbent president and vice president and the first lady. And and so you have this 
closed feedback loop where you are, in fact, even in the iconography of the building you live in, you are comparing yourself to those who come before. Well, and that's it's just inevitable. Well, uh, I th- and John, I think I think you'll agree with me. And we can the, the President's Club is a book by Duffy and, and Gibbs. You could write a whole other book called The Vice President's Club, in which you know the people who have have decided that they uh, a guy who's run for president a couple times has been a senator for many many years decides to take the number two job, the understudy job, uh, to a much younger man. You know, um, the vice presidents have a whole other bunch of complexes, um, all of them, not just Joe Biden, but you know, the, to then. Often they all want to be president, and they very rarely get to be president. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But then, when you get to be president, if you are the older gentleman who was who put himself at the service of the younger man uh, to make history, and then you now have a chance to succeed that younger man as president, that just adds another psychological dimension to it that I just you know uh, I can't I I wouldn't even deign to, to or even attempt to explicate all of it, but it's obviously it's a layer that adds an additional level of complexity to the way you think about your role in the world. So here's my other one of the other essays I will never write uh, <laughs> since, since you bring this up. I, I have an I have an elaborate theory about presidents and vice presidents, and I'll do it succinctly. One of the only genuinely autocratic decisions a presidential nominee or a president ever gets to make is who the vice president's going to be. And so therefore, you have a Dr. Frankenstein thing going on, which is your view is you just elevated this person. And therefore, you have changed their lives and you expect total, absolute loyalty. The vice president in the modern era, post-Mondale, Mondale forward, that person is almost always in the room up until the last moment of decision. And so therefore, they know almost all the factors that go into a decision, but they don't have to make the decision and take the accountability for it. And there is an organizational life deputy-itis, right? The deputy always thinks that they would have done it just a little bit better. And then you bring the spouses in, <laughs> which is, so if you're the first lady, I'm not saying this about Dr. Biden, but this is a generic point, you basically look at the vice president as the embodiment of your beloved's mortality. So right. that's a complicated right. thing. Yeah. yeah. And the vice presidential spouse is like a military spouse, which is you got to be nice to the general, but you're hoping you're going to be the general pretty soon. And so it's no, I don't think it's a coincidence if I'm even remotely right about what I just said, that presidents and vice presidents don't have durable relationships. So they spend all this time together in the most intense environment you can possibly imagine. But then when they're gone, there's not a lot of contact by and large. The Clintons and the Gores, right? Uh, The Bushes and the Cheneys. It just goes on and on. And so it's just complicated, as you say. Do I think President Biden wakes up thinking about Barack Obama? Absolutely not. I do think that one of the things that happens here in in a very small zip code is I think Obama alumni have a particular view of Biden uh, that pops out in ways that I don't think are particularly helpful to the president. Right. Uh, But that's just alumni association stuff. Let me just say this, and I mean, you don't have to respond to this, but I have to say, because we have talked about this once before, I swear to God, John, if you and I 
really wanted to to really score, we would co-executive produce a television show, uh, either about or uh, as a as a loosely based on the interplay between William Jefferson Clinton, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Tipper Gore, and Al Gore in the White House for for eight years because. It is like it, you'd have to. We'd have to hire Chekhov, uh, <laughs> Eve Eve Ensler, who did the the vagina monologues, uh, Mamet, uh, and somebody's and one of the descendants of Sigmund Freud to to write that thing. But it would be incredible. It yep. would be one of the most incredible things ever produced if you got it right. It would be just. I mean. I can't even I can't even begin to explain. I'm going to play Joe Biden here. He's asked at the this is the last Joe Biden question for you. Here he's asked at the press conference. Just listen to him here when he gets asked about 2024. John, you raised it. Uh, here is what he said uh, at the White House the other day uh, when he was asked about it. Well, here we'll hear what the reporter here has to say and, and hear what he had to say. Two thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for re-election. What is your message to them, and how does that factor into your final decision? about whether or not to run for re-election. It doesn't. What's your message to them? To those two-thirds of Americans- Watch me. I ask you, John, this question. We, we know Joe Biden will be emboldened by the performance of his party and, and, the, and the verdict rendered in some sense on him uh, from these midterms. We also know that the man, we all know, all men we know, you feel your age. Every every tick of the clock, man, and and even the most healthy of us feel our every year that passes, every day that passes, sometimes feels like for me, you know, you feel it, and and I know presidents feel it. You know this, you know. You talked to Barack Obama about what he about, you know, you could feel, you know, just the weight of the years and the, all that stuff. The other thing we know about Joe Biden is he likes to stall. He loves he just he never does anything uh, promptly. He always like keeps the keeps you in suspense. So we may have months before we know what the ultimate answer to the question of whether he's running again or not. But the question I have for you is this, knowing him the way you know him, not do you think he's going to run? How do you think he thinks about this? Like it, just understanding his psyche, what is the framework, the criteria, the prism that he's going to be using and the factors that you think will come into play as he makes the decision about whether he wants to run it again in 2024? I think that the president believes what he said out there all fall and I guess earlier in the year too, about politics is not just a referendum, it's also a choice. And so the question is, if not me, who? And I don't mean that in the Democrat, but if I'm not sitting at this desk making the decisions that I think are best, who's the plausible Republican who would be sitting here? And I think that arguably, and this goes to what some of the points you've made, I think that may end up being decisive. I think he is unusually, again, boosterism alert here, but I mean it, so take it for what it's worth. I think for an American politician, he is remarkably clear-eyed and insofar as an American politician can manage the ego part of it, I think he's able to do that. Whether that would be decisive or not, I don't know. I don't think he will run for re-election because he loves the power. I don't think he would run for re-election to prove something. I think he would run if he believed that the alternatives were going to undo the work that he believes is important. I really do think that. The personal side, you know, it's going to change. It's going to change in the next uh, three or four months, depending on the House. 
depending on what the political atmosphere becomes around his family. But I, I genuinely believe that if he had to decide today, I think he would run. And I think he would do it for all the for obvious reasons that we've talked about, you know, that everybody's left him for dead again and again and again. Yeah. And there he is. And he believes he's delivering. Yep. And one of the things, you know, there's something we haven't talked about and doesn't get talked about much. But these investments, these the CHIPS Act, you know, the the, the manufacturing base and all that. I can say this, that looms larger in his mind than it does in the public mind. Sure. And sure. so he does see this as generational work. So I, I think I think all these things are going to uh, be in there. I'm not quite sure who the interlocutors are for him beyond right. the family. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting question. But if but if he listened to everybody else, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. All right, we're going to take one more quick break here on Hell and High Water, and we'll return for the final segment of the podcast with Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, author of about a billion books, best-selling many of them, the man, the myth, the legend, John Meacham. He's the author most recently, let's not forget about this, his most recent New York Times bestseller, And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle, a fantastic book for the upcoming holidays. Make sure you pick that up and also that you stay tuned. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. So you raised the question of Republicans, and I, I want to I want to have a couple, a couple, give you a couple Republican questions, and I'll let you go. But but let's. You, you, there's obviously a thing. There's this other party we haven't talked about them at all, except in the context of the election denialists and abortion and some other things. But there is the future, and and look, there was one other big winner uh, yeah. in the on midterm election night. Uh, and that was Ron DeSantis, who who won this big, big giant victory in, in Florida, alongside Marco Rubio, both of whom now, like, there is this perception that Florida no longer a battleground state. I mean, they won outsized victories, crushed their Democratic rivals, and did so in a way that has changed a lot of people's ideas about a lot of things, winning massive you know, majorities of Hispanic vote, you know, taking over Miami-Dade, which used to be one of the most reliable Democratic counties in the, in the country. I, I was going to play you DeSantis's victory speech in which he does exactly what you thought, think you would do. He basically lays this whole case out about how Florida is the place where woke goes to die and it's an anti-woke diatribe. That's what he does. But I'm not going to play that. Instead, I'm going to play an ad that appeared a couple days before before the campaign. Got a lot of, there's so much going on right before the election. No one really pays attention to these things. But this ad, it got some attention because his wife, Ron DeSantis' wife, posted this on social media and the ad is kind of an homage or a ripoff, whatever, of Paul Harvey. This is the Ron DeSantis God Made a Fighter ad. I really want to hear what you have to say about this, John, because mm. there's almost no one who this is more down the middle of the plate for than you. It's long, but we're going to play the first like 30 seconds. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, kiss his family goodbye, travel thousands of miles for no other reason than to serve the people, to save their jobs, their livelihoods, their liberty, their happiness. So God made a fighter. Okay, so I have a pretty big ego. <laughs> and I know, and I, and I know, even though you like to pretend you don't, you have a pretty big ego. And we have, and we have covered a lot of presidents. 
who have pre-baby yep. egos. I mean, like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, D- Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all big egos. I think every one of those people I just mentioned and most of the billionaires I've ever met would be, would be like a little bit like, I don't think I could put out this ad. I can't put out an ad that suggests that I'm like God's chosen one. But that's what Ron DeSantis did there. And also I would say like basically Paul Harvey is owed some royalties there. You know, his thing was God made a farmer, not God made a fighter. But my God, my God, the, the, the act of video-based onanism combined with, <laughs> combined, with a, combined with the divine, it's like, it's like a, he's doing a circle jerk with the, with the Lord there. I don't, I don't know what to say about that, but it blows my mind that that was a closing television commercial that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, put out. I asked for, as Chris Matthews liked to say in the old days, your thoughts. My thoughts. My thoughts. It is highly demographically focused, right? Because who knows who Paul Harvey is if not Florida voters, Yeah. right? So you have to be of a certain age. There's an Icarus feel to this, to move from the Hebrew Bible to the pagan world. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I, I think it's it does show you what the DeSantis world, the DeSantis's world view of DeSantis. One of the things I wish there was more coverage of, because I just want to read it, is the consultant class in this hour, sort of who's in conversation with who, right? And who's in conversation with the donor class and the, the various outlets. I watched a little bit of Fox on, on Tuesday night and... It, it does appear that DeSantis is the um, certainly the flavor of the week there. Mm. And so I, I, just, I, I wonder about the the internal sort of DeSantis world that, that, that led to that. I think it's tricky. I think the other thing you've written important books about and, and covered forever, you actually don't know how these people are going to do until they get out there and do it. Right. It just, you know, it, it's just different. I think the... And again, I'm usually wrong about this stuff, but the whole where woke goes to die feels very 2021 to me Yeah, as opposed to 2022. Or even 2023 and, or 2024, by God. Yeah, it just it's just a little different, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm out talking, here's my tiny little Ronald Reagan-like anecdotal evidence. So I've been out talking about Abraham Lincoln, right? And I expected every question to be about race and slavery. The overwhelming preponderance of questions I've gotten have been about saving democracy and union. Right. Not about race and slavery. Right. And tiny little thing. And of course, it, it can change back, obviously. But it just feels as though you talk about cultural issues when you haven't got a lot else to talk about. So therefore, as ever, there's the, you know, the known unknowns that are coming up in the next 24 months. But there's also the question of what does the economy do? And does, in fact, do Republicans have, and this is a more technical thing, are they really able to quit Trump? Rob, yes. And and look, you know, the, the other thing is the zeitgeist man is a slippery bitch. It's like it's it moves really fast, and these white these guys. I mean, I look. I remember this is not going to be a great analogy, but it's it's not bad. You know, people say, "Well, he's the governor of Florida, big important state." I'm like Pete Wilson, governor of my home state. 
1996, people were like, Pete Wilson's got the tiger by the tail, man. He had the anti-immigrant, his rhetoric. People thought Pete Wilson is going to be a front runner for a president in 1996. And he was just bad. He was bad at it. And it wasn't just that he was bad at it. He was behind the curve on the zeitgeist. And it turned out that a guy named George W. Bush was ahead of the curve in terms of like how, at that moment, how Republicans wanted to talk about immigration and, and, and being connected to the world and other stuff. Pete Wilson looked like a clown by the time he ran, even though he was the, won a huge election for governor of California in 1994. So it's like, you know, it's you're a zeitgeist candidate when you're talking about like things like your whole thing is about woke this, woke that, you know? It turns out that like Republicans don't necessarily have their finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist better than any of us do. And, and it's, it's hard to keep that alive. But I'll tell you who agrees with us about this, that your appeal on based on that alive. The person who agrees with us, he's got a very determined uh, enemy now, apparently, in Donald Trump, who's going to yep. be announcing, he says, going to be announcing his own presidential campaign, uh, another one, uh, on the day this podcast appears. We don't know whether that will actually happen or not. But, you know, by all indications, he seems pretty, he got the shit kicked out of him for what happened last week, you know, across the board, the Murdoch Enterprises, the the Fox, the Wall Street Journal, the donor class, the Pat Toomey's of the world, the, you know, everybody's out there now. We're done with you, Donald Trump Day, or a week in the Republican Party right now. And I guess his reaction to it was to basically just take out a meat cleaver and say, I'm going to chop Ron DeSantis into a bunch of little pieces. I'm still running for president. All you people don't really get it. All of you establishment Republicans don't really get it. You, you, know, you have these spasms where you try to be through with me, but you're not through with me. And the base isn't through with me either. And so I'm going to, I will burn this thing to the ground if I have to, but I'm going to destroy Ron DeSantis and I'll destroy Rupert Murdoch and I don't care. So I ask again your thoughts about all that because it is, you know, an amazing moment to see. We saw it right after January 6th for a second. Maybe they were going to quit Trump. Yeah. Is that moment finally here? I mean, is this the moment where Trump, because it's Trump who, who made the Trump movement, is Trump the one now who tears the entire Republican Party down, just to, down to the studs? Is that what we're in for now? And maybe that's a good thing for the GOP. Well, it, it may well be a good thing for the GOP. I, I think very practical question here, which is Donald Trump could become the Republican nominee if, if it's a 30, 35 percent winning margin in these primaries, right? So- Let's say God didn't make a fighter. Who's, who's, let's just for, for, and perhaps God made a patsy, or, or 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 God made a conventional big state governor who wants yeah. to be president, right? Yeah. We, and he made a lot more of those than we want to talk about sometimes. Ronald Reagan used to say, "I always ask whenever I'm getting overconfident, I refer to President Dewey." So you've got, let's say, you have six candidates. You have DeSantis, Pompeo, Haley, well, you know, whatever the Pence, whatever the number is, and they split the we're quitting Trump vote and Trump emerges. And I think you're right. This does feel like late January 2021 a little bit. And I just don't think, you know, the, the American politics is now littered with people predicting that Donald Trump was done. Maybe he is. And if he is, the people going to vote this time get an enormous amount of credit because it's not it seems to me it's not going to be a bunch of establishment Republicans sitting around in new free fleece vests who are going to do it. Right. It's going to be this is all about power. It's always been about power. Yeah. And so if Trump is now 
going to be an architect, not of amassing power, but of the Republicans losing it, then probably enough of them change their mind. But they could split that vote very easily, it seems to me. And we would dishonor, and I use that word advisedly, the verdict that we've talked about, and to some extent I have celebrated of this week, that can be undone quickly. Right. And so, again, this is not a war one. It's a battle one. Right. But the only way to win a war is to win battles. Well, this is the thing I will kind of bring this thing to a close here, but I'm celebrating it too because, you know, the last week, because my view is we all should be on team democracy and not, uh, and, and team democracy is a, is, a, is a big of a win for team democracy the other night. And, you know, to see the Republicans conceding, to see Liz Cheney going and endorsing Democrats and being rewarded for doing that, stepping across party lines and doing something that people just don't do enough anymore. That's just a good thing, you know? The election deniers losing is a good thing. There are a bunch of those things that you can say. Unfortunately, right now, if you're in a lot of these cases, it can be cast as partisan because Republicans are the ones who are the election deniers and the conspiracy theorists and the autocrats and et cetera. But from my point of view, that's not really to me what what is really about. It's me. It's about you know if if it's about the principle of the institutions. And you and I are in agreement about this. It's like why I celebrate a day like that, not because Democrats did or didn't win some given race. I don't. I'm not out there singing the praises of John Fetterman. I'm just out there singing the praises of I like Doug. Like Doug Mastriano was at the Capitol on January 6th, and he's an election yeah. denier. That motherfucker should lose, and I'm happy if he loses, not because he's a Republican, but because he's bad for America, right? But I'm sitting here right now talking to you in Arizona. You know I'm from the West, and the West is weird, man. I've been out here a little bit the last couple of months on, and watching this slate of election deniers running in the state of Arizona. And there's like a little like, you know, Carrie Lake could still win this race, maybe is favored to win this race. And she's the most stars board candidate of this, of this cycle. And I don't say that in a praising way, but just she has great performance skills. The events she ran at her, she generated a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy. If she wins this race, she becomes the governor of Arizona. She's both dangerous because of what she believes and also because she's very good at politics. And, and so there's like a little bit of a, you know, to your point about battles versus wars, I'm like, great that all those election deniers lost. And, but like, don't, don't look now, but you know, that rough beast, you know, is, uh, is rising in the desert, slouching towards the Phoenician to be born. You know what I mean? It's like, there's, yeah. there's this is not over. This fight's not over. And, and no. try, you know? Look, and it, it, it only takes one state legislature in a close presidential race to throw the constitutional presidential, I mean, we won't, let me put it this way. We are not going to know whether the 2022 elections were as important as they feel now until the transfer of power in 24, 25. Right. Yeah. So this is a, this is a down payment, but the deal can fall through. Yeah. And I guess that's my last thing for you. You know, I know you were always to go back to a point you've made many times, but you know, you've often compared, and you did, I think, earlier in the podcast, even here, that, you know, you, you use that McCarthy era as an analogy for kind of what we're going through now. And then I hate the fever broke as a, as a metaphor, but there was a thing, McCarthy's censure, there was a moment when the fever broke, you know, and, and, and I know it's too, you just said it's too early to tell if 2022 is that. But I guess that's the, the question I wanted to end with is, you know, it's not, it's not just whether Trump... Ask them, you know, does he get indicted? Do they do they really break with them? Are they really done with them? Trumpism, the tendencies towards anti-democratic, autocratic tendencies and and actions, you know, those things are alive in the Republican Party now. 
is what you're watching for now is to see whether this is the break where maybe we start to get back to normal? Is it really now 2024, the presidential election, transfer of power, what happens there? Is that the, the moment that we all have to keep our eyes on and the yardage between now and there? Or is there something else? Like, what are you watching And as you kind of try to say, hey, we started to turn the corner? Yeah, I think the central thing to watch is the Republican presidential primary field and who prevails. Because if there are rational Republicans with whom we may disagree on policy 90% or whatever, or maybe not, if the Republican Party presents a policy-oriented alternative to President Biden that is based on actually winning votes as opposed to trying to steal elections <laughs> afterward, right. then that's the system working. Yeah. And so it, it really, it, to me, it's that fundamentally. Is the Republican Party, which has been the vehicle for this illiberal movement, is it going to become a rational, rule-of-law-abiding contender for temporal policy dominion, mm-hmm. or is it going to be disruptive and anti-democratic? And so how God made a fighter does and where he ends up standing on those kinds of questions and the other people who might be the nominee of that party, that's, to me, that's the question. And I think that the potential for chaos in a presidential transfer is enormous. And it doesn't take that many before you move into litigation and then you move into, well, you know, does it have to go yeah. to the House? You know, all, all that stuff, which used to seem like just dork porn, but it's not dork porn now. And so I, 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 to me, that's what I'm watching is Trump's relative popularity and vote-getting capacity in the Republican primaries. I will say in closing that I agree with you, I'll be watching all those things, but I got to say, a Republican primary nomination fight debate that featured the following people on stage, Donald J. Trump, God Made a Fighter, a.k.a. Ron DeSantis. And I want to throw one person in there because I, only because I don't think he has any chance to win the Republican nomination, but on the debate stage with, with that guy, Chris Christie... If yeah. you put those three guys together, forget about who else you put on the stage. Yeah. Chris Christie, I think, has no chance of ever being the Republican nominee. But he would, I believe, would rip Ron DeSantis down to the studs and chew on his bones. God made a fighter. I mean, like, see Ron DeSantis' actual political skills if he ever has to go and stand on a stage next to either of those guys, Donald Trump, Chris Christie, and there's probably 10 others. I think, Ron, I think you are looking at not a fighter, but a paper tiger down there in Florida. But maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe he's a titan. Maybe he's the next Ronald Reagan. I don't see it. I don't see it, dude. And, you, see and it. we just, you don't know until you run. So now right now it drives Trump crazy. So it's kind of fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally fun. I'm just talking now about the popcorn, you know, munchability factor. I mean, it'd be a hell of a thing to watch all those guys really go after each other. I mean, yeah, really. I suspect we're gonna, and I bet we're going to see it. Um, God, let's hope. John, you and I will be uh, sitting there together. I'll bring the popcorn, you bring the butter. Or actually, I'll bring the popcorn, you bring the bourbon. You got it. And the cigars. And the cigars. And we'll, be, we'll have a brown We'll have a brown <laughs> evening rather than a brown breakfast. Uh, th- <laughs> thank you for doing this, buddy. Um, uh, take care. It's good to see you. You too. Take care. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to John Meacham, Pulitzer Prize winning biographer. 
author, most recently, of And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. That one's out now. Go get it for Christmas for someone you love who cares about history. And and while you're doing that, if you like this podcast, please subscribe. Tell and I water, share us, rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of this here podcast, Hell and High Water. Amr Sultan produced and engineered this excellent episode. Zoya Soroy is our researcher and the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, the truth, the light, the heat. Marshall Eisen, he's our executive producer. <laughs>